Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Sachin Yende, MD, MS, about his article, Long-Term Quality of Life Among Survivors of Severe Sepsis, Analyses of Two International Trials, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Yende is Vice President of Critical Care at VA Pittsburgh. He also serves as Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine and Translational Sciences, and Director of the Clinical Epidemiology Program at the University of Pittsburgh's CRISMA Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I would like to, first of all, uh, thank and then welcome Dr. Yende to uh, the SCCM podcast program. Uh, I very much appreciate him taking the time to do this and to discuss a very important topic, which is post-critical care survivor population and how they do. Uh, before we begin, uh, for um, procedural purposes, I want to make sure that uh, we ask Dr. Yene about any disclosures that he has to share. Ludwig, thank you for having me on the podcast. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Okay, good. So I will uh, start off by asking Dr. Yende to briefly describe for us his uh, purpose in uh, studying this population and the question that he has specifically for this journal publication um, and the study population itself. Dr. Yende? So we were interested in looking at long-term quality of life in survivors of sepsis. Now, many of you may have seen studies showing that sepsis survivors have long-term consequences, mainly in the physical, psychiatric, and cognitive domains. Uh, with advances in critical care, we are getting really good at keeping patients alive both in the ICU and while they're in the hospital, which means that many patients are leaving the hospital with many impairments that they may have incurred during the hospital stay. So our goal was to understand this in a fairly large population. Previous studies have tried to look at the frequency of quality impairments in these patients, but most of these studies were very small or were from a single geographic region. What we decided to do was look at two large international trials, and I'll talk about it in a moment. These two trials were probably shock and access that many of you are probably familiar with. But the most interesting thing was that these trials enrolled patients across the world, including in Europe, North America, South America, and many other countries, including from resource poor settings. And we wanted to see if the poor quality of life that has been observed in previous studies are also observed in patients who are enrolled throughout the world in these two trials. One of the issues with prior studies where they have shown that survivors of sepsis have poor long-term outcomes uh, in the physical, cognitive, and psychiatric domain has been that they have enrolled a very broad population. And sometimes it's difficult to tease whether the long-term consequences that these patients incur are present even before they had severe sepsis or are truly a consequence of the sepsis episode itself. Some investigators have tried to address this by using a population match control. While this approach does take into account that they're looking at individuals who are equally sick as sepsis patients, it doesn't allow us to study the consequence of the sepsis episode itself. 
So what we tried to do was look at two trials where patients were enrolled throughout the world, and we limited our analysis to individuals who are fully functional and living independently. So we knew that before they came to the ICU, these individuals are doing fairly well. We then looked at these patients after they have been discharged from the hospital and followed them for one year in the ACCESS trial and six months in the PROVIS shock trial. I'll just give you a very brief idea about what these trials are. Both trials are looking at immunomodulatory therapies for sepsis. These are rather contemporary trials. That means they have been done in the last about five to seven years. ACCESS trial look at the agent that blocks DLR4 and did have negative results, and I believe it was published in JAMA a few year, years ago. Provis shock trial, many of the listeners may be familiar with, was sort of the second big trial done to test activated protein C for sepsis and showed that in a sicker pair population of patients with shock, there was no difference in the mortality between these patients. So we basically looked at individuals who were enrolled in both these trials. We followed them over one year for the ACCESS study and six months over the PROVIS shock study. And what we showed in the analysis was that about a third of individuals who were discharged alive did die at about six months. But what was most surprising was that of the individuals who were alive, an additional third had some problems with quality of life. Now, we used EQ5D, which is a commonly used instrument to measure quality of life. This particular instrument was used in both trials because it is quick and easy to administer, probably takes a couple of minutes. It is available in multiple languages, so one can study individuals internationally. And it looks at five domains. Uh, it looks at whether people have problems with mobility, self-care, usual care, anxiety or depression, pain or discomfort, and really ask them very simple questions. Do you have no problem, some or moderate problem, or severe problems in each of these five domains? And based on their response, they get graded as zero, one, and two. And what we decided to look was, how many of these individuals who were doing so well before they had sepsis now had new problems in each one of these five domains? And as you can see in this paper, about a third of people have problems with mobility, about 20% have problems with self-care, 40% were not able to get back to their usual care activities, and about a third and 40% of people had problems with anxiety or depression and pain or discomfort respectively. So what this tells us is that even in patients who are alive at about six months after sepsis, a large proportion of these patients have problems with their quality of life, particularly being able to get up and around the house, being able to function independently, and also have problems with pain, discomfort, and anxiety and depression. What was surprising to us was the fact that a large proportion of these patients, uh, I would say about 40% of these patients, could no longer live independently. What we noted was that Approximately 22% were at home and required help. 5% were in nursing home or rehabilitation facilities, and about 5% more were in acute care hospital, suggesting that people who were living independently before sepsis are very likely to require some form of assistance at six months. 
We also looked at provost shock because we thought, well, maybe these findings are unique to one trial, but found virtually identical results in the provost shock study, suggesting that these findings are very generalizable. We then said, well, let's look at individuals who are young to begin with. These are individuals who are generally less than 45 years old. And let's look at individuals who do not have chronic diseases before they have sepsis. And perhaps we might see different patterns, but what we are surprised to know is that even in younger individuals or those without chronic diseases, we found that these individuals had the same patterns we saw in the overall population. Many of these individuals still require some form of assistance and had problems in the same domains of quality of life. So I think so what the study does is it adds to the literature suggesting that sepsis survivors have major problems with quality of life. And this is seen in a large proportion of patients who are alive, suggesting that simply looking at mortality alone may not be important, but we really need to look at improving the quality of life in these patients. Yeah, what you're saying is that just achieving the primary goal of having these patients survive critical illness is no longer enough, that we actually need to improve their quality of life, which is in a large proportion of them quite poor, right? That's correct. Did you expect these findings? Are they consistent with the, the, the other data that other groups had published in the past? To some extent, yes. I think so. The fact that a third of these patients who are survivors had such large deficits in quality of life in individuals all across the world, when we even looked at people in North America, South America, Europe, and the remaining part of the world, we found this consistent pattern across everybody. That was a little bit surprising to us. Were there particular subgroups that were at higher risk? So we tried to look at factors that might predict why some individuals are more likely to have problems. And we focused on two domains within quality of life. Uh, the first one is mobility. That means can people get around? And the second one is self-care. Can people take care of themselves? And what we found was a few things that weren't surprising. So, for example, if you're older, you're more likely to have these problems. Uh, if you have more chronic diseases, you're more likely to have these problems. But what we found was that if you require longer duration of mechanical ventilation, you are more likely to have these problems. Uh, if you require organ support in terms of dialysis, you are more likely to have these problems, which tells us that something which probably isn't very surprising to many clinicians, but as our patients are sicker in the ICU and we tend to provide more organ support and they're more likely to stay in the ICU for a longer duration, we're going to see some of these show up as long-term consequences in terms of problems in their quality of life. What about patients with uh, pre-hospitalization psychiatric disorders? Were, were those more likely to have issues with their quality of life? Unfortunately, we did not have very detailed data about their quality of life before they had sepsis. All we knew was that these individuals were fully functional and living independently. Some of them may have had some psychiatric problems, and so it's really difficult to draw very strong inferences about their psychiatric, sort of the long-term psychiatric implications of sepsis from this uh, data. Right, right. I see what you're saying. I asked that question because it almost sounds like 
what you're hypothesizing is that there are a lot of physical issues that lead to long-term problems in terms of being able to live independently. And I'm, in my own mind, trying to figure out how that fits into what some people feel uh, is true, which is that patients with premorbid issues with psychiatric disorders are at higher likelihood of having psychiatric issues post-critical illness. But maybe there are physical problems and then there are psychological problems and the two could combine or perhaps independently lead to uh, functional issues. Yeah, that's a great point. So what you're asking is what is the interaction between these domains? And I would sort of frame it as physical, cognitive, and psychiatric. And if we were to make an assumption that all of the findings we just described are new, that means um, these, these patients did not have problems in any one of these domains, is it likely that patients who have some degree of physical problems or some degree of cognitive problems are more likely to have psychiatric problems because they recognize sort of these limitations in their lives uh, due to sepsis? I think so that is very likely to be true. Uh, and I think so many of us probably have seen patients. Uh, I had a patient send an email to me saying she was doing incredibly well and then had an episode of sepsis and has been having pain and discomfort that she couldn't explain for a long time. And this has been going on for a year and nobody could sort of explain why that is occurring not related to any lines placed in the ICU, not related to any specific procedure, just generalized pain and discomfort. And it was clear sort of from her description that she was having a tremendous anxiety uh, by the fact that this was affecting her quality of life. So I think so all of these factors at the end of the day do interact and have a huge impact on patients' quality of life. Mm -hmm. It's a large problem to tackle. Well, I, I think you've teased out some really interesting questions, and I'm curious, what are uh, some of the further studies that you are planning to um, tease some of these factors out? So I, I think so one can think about this in multiple ways. I think so one can think about looking at this from a pure clinical standpoint. Uh, what can we do differently while the patient is in the hospital to improve quality of life? And I think so as clinicians, we have traditionally focused on mortality. Uh, the role of uh, intensivist always was to keep the patient alive. But I think so we've got to take a step back and think about things we do in the IC on a day-to-day -day basis that may have a huge impact on quality of life. One could say, for instance, we have started using a lot of neuromuscular blockers for patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And an important question is uh, whether the use of neuromuscular blockers may improve mortality, but whether it worsens long-term quality of life by affecting physical function. So I think so as clinicians, we really need to pay attention to things we do in the ICU that may not have an impact on mortality or may even improve mortality, but could potentially worsen uh, long-term uh, morbidity and quality of life. The second question is, why does this happen and what are the mechanisms driving it? And I think so this is an area that is very understudied in terms of critical illness. And part of the reason is we don't see these patients typically in follow-up. 
And so patients go out of the hospital, go back to their primary care physicians or their subspecialists, and then we don't get a chance to follow them. And what we really need is to try to start understanding what are the mechanisms that may be at play that would lead to these outcomes. So, for instance, there is some data suggesting that when patients are getting ready to go home after pneumonia, uh, these patients have elevated levels of their inflammatory markers and coagulation markers. Uh, we have shown that many of these patients had D-dimer levels were so high that if I saw them in an emergency room, I would think that this patient was having a pulmonary embolus. And what we have shown is that higher levels of discharge were associated with worse long-term outcomes. What we really need to do is try to now start understanding if some of these mechanisms that are at play at discharge persist during recovery and then lead to worsened quality of life and mortality down the road. And then the third big domain is how, what is the right model of delivering care to these individuals? And one can imagine that these patients would come back to the clinic, but one can also imagine that one could think of a multidisciplinary approach where one could have some of these patients come back to clinic to address some problems with regards to their physical function or cognitive function problems, but one could also imagine having going to some of these patients' homes and delivering some of these cares, considering that they have so many problems uh, to come back to their uh, follow-up clinics. And so I think so we got to think about it from a health services standpoint, from a translational standpoint, as well as a clinical epidemiologic standpoint. I think that is such an inspiring approach to, to think about delivering post-critical illness care to patients at home because they are so debilitated and perhaps also psychologically um, not ready to face the world. And that, that would ensure that we actually get to see these patients. That, that, that sounds incredible. And it sounds like what you are personally working on is looking at these inflammatory markers. Um, obviously, this is uh, quite a ways down the road, but are you hypothesizing that perhaps there is a way to intervene in, in, in some fashion um, for these high-risk patients so that their outcome could be different? Yeah, I think so. That would be very attractive. So I would say interventions could be conceptualized in two ways. Uh, one is thinking about interventions that are actually started very early uh, in the critical illness and then continued throughout the critical illness and maybe even continued after discharge. Or one can imagine interventions that are started at discharge based on somebody's profile and those interventions are continued for several months or years down the road. I think so conceptually as critical care physicians, we have to sort of change our mindset and think about critical illness not only as an acute illness, but some sort of a subacute to chronic illness or an acute illness with long-term deficits where the interventions run for several weeks or months after discharge. I say, well, what could be those interventions? I think so those interventions could be changing the inflammatory profile on these patients. There is some data showing that many of these patients do not resolve their inflammation very well. Aspirin, which is a very simple drug, has been known to have effects on a circulating marker called resolvents. And these markers are important to resolve the inflammatory process in patients. And so one could conceptually think that 
if there was enough data to support that these patients have persistent inflammation, then one could start some simple interventions such as aspirin early on during the hospital course and then continue for several days, weeks, or months after discharge and change their inflammatory profile. So uh, I, I, I am very curious about this, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do do, do you have any uh, data or do you have any um, sense that it is possible to uh, change somebody's outcome based on uh, these inflammatory markers? Or is it that these inflammatory markers are elevated in particular patients with particular genotypes where it you know, predicts a poor outcome, but we, we actually cannot intervene? I think so. I would be speculating if I said that we have very strong data suggesting that inflammation persists after hospital discharge. The best data for persistent inflammation looks at patients discharged with pneumonia and measuring inflammatory markers 48 hours before discharge. And we looked at several subgroups. We looked at patients who are going home so that we are looking at a set of individuals who the clinicians thought were doing pretty well and were ready to be discharged home. And we still saw elevated inflammatory markers. I think so the next step is to measure these markers after discharge several weeks or months down the road and see if they remain persistently elevated. Now, if they're persistently elevated, then the question, next question is, why are they elevated? It could be due to genetic reasons, but again, I'm speculating out here, but I would probably hang my hat on saying that it is more likely due to epigenetic reasons. And for those of you who are not familiar with epigenetics, uh, it's basically an interaction between the environment and the individual's genotype. There are two commonly studied epigenetic changes. One is called histone acetylation, and the other one is called demethylation. What happens is when patients are exposed to a very severe environmental stress, such as severe sepsis, and they're exposed to circulate high levels of circulating markers, one of the hypotheses is that some of the genes in the genome may undergo epigenetic changes. And these epigenetic changes may persist even after the individual has gone home. Now, the question is, if patients go home and their organ damage or injury due to severe sepsis gets resolved, is it possible that the epigenetic changes persist? And the answer is we don't know. But if they do persist down the road, then that would explain why somebody would still have high inflammatory cytokines several months down the road, despite the fact that they have sort of improved. And this gets back to sort of this anecdotal experience with patients. I don't know if, you, if people have heard experiences by patients where people have recovered. They may have a little bit of acute kidney injury, but they are pretty much recovered from the illness. They're back to work but they still have these problems they describe. They are not back to work. They are not, I'm sorry, they are not back to their baseline. And the question is, are there some subclinical subtle changes going on which may explain it? And so I think so there are lots of hypotheses as to what can go on. Uh, epigenetics is one of them, but I think it's very interesting if we can uh, try to uh, disentangle what's, going on in terms of the inflammatory response down the road. That, 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 that sounds like a great next step. Thank you so much for elaborating on all of that. I, I really appreciate it. I think that's, um, that, that really frames everything that you've talked about uh, on this podcast in terms of what the uh, future direction could be.
Thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you what, besides the things that we've already talked about so far, um, were there um, other take-home points for you uh, in terms of uh, your findings? I think so. One thing as researchers and as clinicians who read papers that we should focus on is thinking a little bit about what the right endpoint should be when we read a clinical trial of sepsis patients. So as many of us know that one of the important things when you read a paper is a primary endpoint. That's how a study is powered. That's usually the primary hypothesis around which this intervention is supposed to work. And as many of you know that traditionally the most important, the most commonly used primary endpoint is mortality. And we often study mortality at 28 days, 60 days, or 90 days. But one of the things we need to keep in mind is that if you see a negative result of a study, it's really important to go in and try to understand if it's truly negative. Is it possible that the intervention does not have any impact on mortality, but could have had an impact on quality of life? Uh, not only that, I think so as a critical care community, we need to start thinking about outcomes that combine mortality and the morbidity due to sepsis. It is quite possible that a drug or an intervention may have a very small impact on mortality, but could potentially have a big impact on quality of life or morbidity. And that intervention may be valuable to a lot of patients. And if you just looked at mortality, we would miss out that effect. So I think so moving forward, we need to be a little bit more careful about how we design these trials and how we interpret the findings of these trials. Yes, I totally see what you're saying. And perhaps that speaks to the improvement in our outcomes that now we um, actually have the luxury of thinking about the quality of life of our patients rather than just trying to make sure that they survive. So I'm going to take that as a plus and uh, to, um, to, to, to be inspired by the future goals that uh, we all share as critical care uh, clinicians. Well, Dr. Yinde, thank you so much for that conversation. I personally learned a lot, and I think it was a great topic for all of us to consider. Thank you all for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 46th Critical Care Congress to be held January 21st to 25th, 2017 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA. This five-day event will feature internationally renowned faculty and content sessions highlighting the most up-to-date, evidence-based developments in critical care medicine. Join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the island sunshine. Register at www.sccm.org congress. Ludwig Lenn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. 
He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.